Welcome back to the fourth episode of Globus, the official podcast of SDSN Youth USA. My name is Nikita Angarski, and I am joined today by Elizabeth Koistina. We are the network coordinators of SDSN Youth USA and your podcast hosts. In this episode, we were fortunate to speak with uh, Afreen Siddiqui, an incredible scientist with numerous awards, fellowships, and publications. She is a research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a visiting scholar at the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. She has an SB in Mechanical Engineering, an SM in Aeronautics and Astronautics, and a PhD in Aerospace Systems, all from MIT. Her research focuses on questions of systems planning and performance and water, energy, agriculture, and space systems. In her past work, she has developed approaches for studying couplings between water, energy, and food security. In this episode, we speak about some of her recent work, the role that scientists play in sustainability, and how we can all be more proactive about using our strengths to help the climate change cause. So I'm originally from Pakistan, and that's where I, I grew up, uh, had my early education. And, and then I came here uh, to MIT, actually, for my undergraduate studies and then stayed on. Um, uh, you know, I've always been interested in space uh, and very much interested in human space exploration. So that has been a great inspiration, which drove part of my interest in studies. So my background is in mechanical engineering. I did my bachelor's in that. And then my master's and PhD was in um, aerospace systems. Uh, now, aerospace uh, is one of those disciplines where there's early on a very much appreciation of, you know, systems where we think about, you know, complexity, we think about engineering complex systems, many parts interacting, uh, but how do we put them all together to achieve, you know, particular, particular mission or goal. Uh, and with that background, I've always been an interested student and I guess later on practitioner of, of systems, systems engineering, systems analysis, systems thinking. Uh, and that influenced my later work, which I now also do. So in addition to space systems, I've been looking at water and energy and agriculture systems for many years, mostly motivated by my own observation that there are a lot of critical societal issues that I care deeply and passionately about. And now my work really centers on using tools of systems analysis uh, to look at these um, issues in the sphere of water, energy, food security, within the sphere of sustainability, uh, to see what new insights, if any, can we get, or new solutions can you potentially identify for these critical issues using tools of systems analysis. So that's what I do as a research scientist at MIT, uh, and I also teach uh, at Harvard Kennedy School uh, some of this, uh, some of these methods. So I teach a course on complex adaptive systems um, analysis systems in a basic way uh, is a conception, right? It's how we conceive of things and a system is something in which you have parts that are interacting with each other. Depending on who you ask, you will slightly get variations of this definition that would build on this and qualify it in different ways. So a systems engineer is focused on building something where parts are interacting and can produce a desired functionality. So we're talking about a car or an airplane or even a phone, right? Uh, if you talk to ecologists or if you talk to political scientists, they are talking about different types of systems where we're not necessarily creating everything, but we are looking to understand behaviors uh, at societal levels, at ecosystem levels and so forth. Uh, but, but, you know, in summary, a system is, uh, in a bounded sense, a set of interacting elements that are producing behavior that exists at the level of the collective not necessarily at the constituent levels. And that's when things such as resilience and stability 
and sustainability become very important and useful uh, to both characterize and understand. Okay. So sort of pivot to um, the discussion of more sustainability wise uh, thinking about systems. Um, we, we did have a guest, you know, a few months ago, um, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who kind of described sustainability in general as an interaction of different disciplines and uh, different kind of ways of thinking. So um, I guess in your experience, how, um, you know, teaching at the Kennedy School and so on and so forth, how have you seen um, sustainability as uh, a field uh, be described as, as, a, as a system? That's a great question. And, you know, I did get the chance to hear uh, Professor Sachs uh, sort of description and, and commentary on that. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, you know, uh, so teaching, teaching at a school where, you know, you have uh, scholars and practitioners from a wide variety of disciplines is, is, is a real pleasure. You get to interact with people from economics background, sociology, uh, political science, uh, uh, you know, and also uh, the, the physical and natural sciences. And it's a great, uh, I think, demonstration of uh, you know, sort of, I think the real need uh, that that policy and governance has in bringing people together from different disciplines. So, uh, connecting to what your question was on on sustainability, uh, you know, there there it has long been recognized that it is not just sort of a unitary uh, focus that you need in, in one particular discipline. It, it is really an integration of of multiple multiple lenses that we need to bring to bear that different disciplines provide. Um, and, uh, you know, th there are some real efforts. Uh, so there's a whole a very real effort on sustainability science, uh, where there have been great work uh, done by both Professor Bill Clark and others who have led the way in uh, organizing uh, this whole area of research and how do we um, how do we think about these issues in a methodical, systematic, scientific way. Uh, and then broadly speaking on the issues of development, right, where the focus of some has been on, okay, how do we, how do we think about action and what do we do about actual development, there's a very strong underpinning of, of economic thought and economic theory, but that's not the only one. Uh, clearly, there are a lot of great um, interactions uh, with people in the natural sciences, uh, in engineering, technology, um, as well as uh, humanities and social sciences. Uh, but, you know, all of these are still ongoing efforts, right? We have not closed the book on, okay, this is, this is we, we have it all figured out and this is what we mean, or this is what needs to be done uh, when we talk about sustainable development. This is very much an ongoing effort. Um, and all I will say, uh, I guess, from my vantage point is that uh, it's great. It's great to see the recognition that people now bring explicitly on the need for for interacting with with other disciplinary areas and, and and thinking about solutions that that need to really build build on wisdom that has been gained from multiple disciplines. Follow up and maybe push that question a bit further. I think in one of the articles you sent, you say that there's a lack of like sufficiently detailed roadmaps, for example, that provide guidance. And I mean specifically from a policy making perspective, specifically from an individual level, like how can one person contribute? to you know the system and what what does that really even mean i think um kind of goes hand in hand with the complexity of the thing that is an sdg because again as you mentioned it's not just like a like a financial system or an economic system it's also like social thought history like history um, and a lot of these goals are actually incredibly political depending on 
the context, like the, the, the country that you're in. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to the creation of that, like of that roadmap. I mean, especially from like a scientific perspective, how does that sort of change your understanding, you think, um, as opposed to if you approached it from uh, like a more historically grounded perspective? That, that's a great question, Elizabeth, and, and one that, you know, I find very fascinating and interesting to think about and also to work on. Um, so my sort of comment about roadmaps was really from, from an article that I wrote uh, kind of when SDGs were first formulated. So this was a conference that happened in, in, in sort of late 2015 and the SDGs had just been put forth and a group of uh, uh, you know, scientists, policymakers got together to talk about, well, what do we do about implementation? So this is great that you know, these goals have been articulated, but what about implementation? And, and that in that context is, is where, where I'd made that sort of uh, observation about roadmaps uh, and the need to have concrete action plans. And this was stemming from my own sort of work with in talking to policymakers in developing countries. As I mentioned, you know, I'm originally from Pakistan and I've, I've worked there and I've also worked in many other countries, uh, interacting one-on-one uh, -on -one with, with senior uh, decision makers, policymakers in many other countries in, in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, even in other regions such as Australia. And one thing I'd heard was that, you know, where people are articulating, it's great to have these goals and, you know, they're aspirational, uh, they're great, but how do we actually achieve them? What is that we need to do? Uh, and that's where, you know, I think where, where the rubber hits the road that, uh, you know, you really need uh, some detailed level of, of thinking and planning and then followed up by action to achieve what it is that you want to want to get out of. And that's easier said than done. That's easier said than done, because when we're talking about these, let's say, overarching goals of, you know, ending hunger or, you know, affordable access to energy or, you know, peace and justice, uh, I think most people would, would ascribe to them. But understanding how do we actually achieve them is, is, is sort of the million dollar, billion dollar, trillion dollar question, perhaps. And how do we do that in an effective, uh, sensible way? Uh, by which accounts for so many other constraints where we want to make sure that you know we're, we are uh, uh, we are uh, you know sort of uh, catering to issues of, of social justice of equity uh, of environment uh, so many other things it's not crystal clear and that's where I think some of the role of system analysis uh, some of the roles of, of you know uh, careful modeling, careful thinking, careful planning comes into play uh, to give you a sense of a roadmap, you know, um, and, and you know, sometimes, sometimes these words are used loosely, some will call action plans, some will call roadmaps, you'll find, you know, all kinds of terminology out there. But when I'm saying this, what I mean by this is basically a clear plan that talks about a set of concrete steps that need to be taken, uh, that together, once they're completed, will get you to ideally where you want to go. Of course, not perhaps with full certainty, but at least with the high degree of likelihood. Um, and, and laying out what those steps are requires uh, thinking through what are first your possible options, right? So you have a whole set of different ways in which you can achieve something, figuring out what are the possible options, uh, then what are the costs of those options? How likely are they, you know, from a political sense, from a social sense, uh, how feasible are they from, from an environmental perspective, all of that uh, technological perspective? Are some of the technologies even feasible that we would like to use? Uh, and figuring all, all of that out uh, and factoring all of that out in coming up with a concrete plan that, that you can execute. 
And that, in my opinion, in my views and my observation, is a capacity that not many places actually have. So, you know, this requires basically cities coming up with their action plans on what it is that they need to do, uh, states, uh, countries, you know, this has to be done at different levels. And, and when I say, you know, with the different uh, sort of social context, national context, what I mean by that is, is that countries have different geographies, they have, you know, different economies, they have different environments. So a country that is largely coastal, perhaps, uh, and perhaps a very different economy based on fisheries and perhaps, you know, forests, is going to have a very whole different set of tasks and activities that need to be undertaken and different set of options that need to be evaluated than another country that perhaps is, is mountainous uh, and, and has a very different terrain, different geography, different economy. And that is what I mean by the fact that every country needs to figure out what are they, what is their option space, how they operate within it and choose their action plan. And that's what I'm sort of referring to that here. And, and this requires, you know, a lot of detail, information, uh, thoughtful analysis, which as I, you know, just mentioned, is, is, is sometimes hard depending on the capacity uh, that's available, right? So are, are there people who, who have the requisite background to perhaps, you know, do this kind of analysis and, and present, you know, the option space, so to speak? Uh, and then, you know, is, is there a participatory uh, process where all the important stakeholders can get together and, and hopefully in an ideal case, uh, mutually uh, identify their their pathway on, on how they want to proceed and go ahead. So all of these, you know, many things have to come together uh, in, in creating these plans and, and later on implementing them. And that's what I mean by, you know, both the need of having these roadmaps and the harder task is also implementing them. I'm curious what you think about the wisdom of crowds in general, because I think we often find that really complicated, nuanced ideas are lost, um, you know, and, and kind of it's all you know well to say we want a democratic consensus on how to proceed and we often find that we begin to oversimplify this these ideas that actually have to be complicated because if they're not complicated they're not going to be effective and we end up in the same place that we started um so maybe you can speak about like just your thoughts on that and how what is the line between oversimplifying like science and trying to get people to understand like it has to be that complicated yeah, you know, that's that's an important and also a difficult question, Elizabeth, right? Because, um, you know, I, I do, uh, you know, having a, an engineering background myself, I appreciate the need for detail. I appreciate the fact that, you know, we really have to get down to, in, in systems architecture, we often mention that, you know, you have to get down to third or fourth level of decomposition of something before you can really get to anything useful or meaningful when you're thinking about design or architecture. Uh, third or fourth level of decomposition means that you're breaking a problem down into a fair amount of detail, uh, detailed description. Um, but then there are also this very real need that when we're talking about issues that relate not to, let's say, just designing uh, the next, uh, you know, sort of um, model of, uh, um, of, of your, uh, you know, uh, coffee cup you know, or, or something like that, something simple, but something that really relates to the public interest when we're talking about energy systems and water systems, uh, what is the role of expertise and what is the role of, let's say, public input and how do we balance, you know, the need for, I guess, complexity versus simplicity, right? Uh, the, these are, uh, are important questions. I don't have a short and simple answer. I wish I could give that to you. I don't. But I feel that what is important are perhaps some 
some guiding principles that can be used. And those guiding principles are that uh, I strongly feel that when engineers uh, or, uh, and planners are engaging on questions of system design that relate to public services, that relate to public welfare, then there is an imperative to include uh, not just expert opinion, but also opinion and input of all the stakeholders who are going to be impacted. And that is not, to, uh, you know, and that is not just the expert designers or, or the technical uh, sort of um, uh, experts, but, but also people who will bear the cost of that system, people who will be affected by that system, uh, people who will use that system, people who will benefit from that system. All of that input really needs to be integrated. And I think when there's that aspiration and when this is recognized, then I think you know uh, we can come up with ways of, of actually doing it. But in some cases, I feel that oftentimes even that aspiration or this recognition of this need is, is missing, and 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 you know uh, things will be built and designed and planned without adequate uh, input of, of all the stakeholders as it should be. And I think uh, speaking a little bit more to <clears throat> the emphasis on kind of uh, implementing the solutions within developing economies. Um, as you mentioned, kind of every economy and every geography has its own solution, but um, with these economies in particular, um, they have a really high capacity for change, but at the same time, uh, often not enough resources, a really huge uh, or like strict budget constraint. Um, so how would you kind of manage the responsibility of um, developing nations versus already kind of uh, sort of those mature um, economies that aren't going to be feeling a lot of that, um, a lot of the negative effects of climate change going forward. Um, so where's the kind of balance there? Yeah, you know, this, the, the question of, you know, responsibility, the question of, you know, climate change and, and how do we sort of, you know, uh, think about this uh, within the context of developing and developed countries. Uh, in, in sort of my own work, which actually centers more on the use of you know, natural resources. So a lot of my own work has focused on water resources um, and then it's interconnections with, with food and, and, um, and energy. In that sense, you know, I feel that some of these issues are actually uh, also local. And it, so you know, the debate on carbon emissions certainly has unfolded um, in the sense where uh, there is accounting for, you know, who has created the most emissions and when uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and then certainly, you know, there's there's a lot of, of that on the table, which I will not get into at this point. But what I want to add is that beyond the carbon emissions debate, there is also, I think, an important recognition of the use of natural resources that are very much within national boundaries and are very much managed and used within national jurisdictions. And that I think perhaps is where most developing countries should also be giving a lot of emphasis on because you know this is things this is things that they're already controlling how they're managing the rivers, how they're using the water, how they're using their forests, how they're managing their forests, their fisheries all of those things, they are within national boundaries. And I feel that sometimes that conversation is just not happening enough. And at least, uh, and I'm speaking to, you know, work that I have done and my own work has really focused on, on this area, which is that how do we make use of, of water resources in sustainable ways? This is something very much that national governments need to think about and then plan out. You will find through evidence that 
uh, it shows that we have not been using water resources in responsible and sustainable ways within national boundaries. And, and now some rivers are international, ab absolutely. So you have transboundary rivers and there, you know, you will get into issues of how nations, at least within regions, can coordinate in a fair and, and sustainable way uh, the sharing of, of the waters that are crossing international boundaries. But in many cases, when we're talking about groundwater, when we're talking about minerals, when we're talking about forests, all of this is within governments and therefore for developing countries uh, my own focus has been is how do how do we you know proceed to sustainably and responsibly using these resources that are very much within jurisdiction of, of and i feel that that is a low-hanging fruit so we can obviously you know engage in international debates and they're important and they have to happen particularly when it comes to the issues of of air pollution because it is global in nature but many of these natural resources are also very much local and i feel that that is often missing from the conversation and debates and really has to happen uh, within developing countries and with the new sense of I think urgency and recognition. There's a sort of debate upon uh, in within kind of like even developed economies such as kind of the US. Um, a lot of the time we do a lot of the, the conversation is really hinged on the kind of two party system and um, and how we will kind of get through to, to a, an effective decision through throughout these kind of politics. Um, and I was wondering, you know, it, within within your experience, once again, at the Kennedy School, um, where where do you kind of see yourself as uh, with an engineering background fitting into this kind of political discussion, um, and where do you find yourself maybe sometimes a little bit hindered by by the political process, or maybe um, maybe even motivated by you know positive and negative within uh, working with like policymakers and uh, and so on. Yeah, you know, uh, I've, I've had quite a bit of a journey, Nikita, in, in sort of my own work and in my own understanding of the world, right? I think we all go through that journey in different ways as, as we uh, engage in our work and engage in our studies. And, and my own journey has been that, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I was very much interested in human space exploration and in some early part of my career, and it was really observing uh, the salient and very important role of policy that got me interested in thinking about the incredible lever that policy has on really shaping the trajectory of so many things, including the tra trajectory of technology development and the trajectory of how I see it, you know, societal welfare. And that was sort of my path in, in both recognizing the importance of policy and recognizing that, you know, I want to be a part of, at least in some form or fashion, of at least uh, creating and doing research that can inform policy, that can inform better decision making. And that is how I see sort of my role to be. Um, and, and I feel that that's, that's an important role. That's a very useful and I think, um, uh, I, I think critical piece that also needs to play out where uh, we are systematically, thoughtfully, creatively looking at questions that intersect uh, policy decision making and uh, systems design engineering 
development and so forth. And, and that's where I've sort of placed myself at. So I have looked at questions that relate to um, you know, evaluating uh, feasibility of, of, you know, uh, water and energy systems and look, especially looking at cross connections between these sectors and what can those cross connections tell us about planning and policy. And in that sense, you know, I found my time at, at the Kennedy School very enriching. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I don't find any hindrance, only only possibilities and, and new ideas and new uh, opportunities that sort of come uh, through my interactions. Uh, so that's, and, and I can only say that I wish there, there would be more of that. Uh, I, you know, in, in my own experience, what I find is that uh, uh, people from engineering careers, uh, uh, in my view, don't interact enough uh, with with the actual, uh, you know, policymakers and, and decision makers. Of course, there is interaction, but I wish there would be more, so. I mean, right, there's always a kind of like interdisciplinary, I guess. Um, first, I have to <clears throat> respect your research and then we can kind of talk and sit down. So that's um, really interesting. Specifically with policy and with like scientific research, the question that often comes to mind is like, where is the money coming from, right? Like, how do you fund research? But at the same time, like, how do you fund research to research more effective policies? Um, and I think that, you know, the work that you're doing is really interesting because you sort of positioned yourself at the intersection, really, and kind of at the node of like, not just politics and, and science, but also, you know, like history and the social component, which is, I think, a really active part of, of the SDGs and sustainable development in general, specifically the paper about um, waste energy transfer and like that specific system, you, you begin the paper, right, by speaking about kind of like the human cost which I thought was actually quite, quite lovely. I mean, specifically in a paper that's like heavily like based on the economics, on the analysis, like you still start and end with like why it matters, like why it matters to the ordinary person. Yeah, no, thank, thank you for that, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, this work on, on waste to energy, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that you kind of noted uh, the, the, the human aspect, uh, I, I guess it came out, but that that ha that was a motivating aspect, right? Uh, that is why I, I did that work. Uh, the problems, you know, that I've picked or the the questions I I try to focus on are the ones um, where I feel that you know sort of um, uh, useful analysis can perhaps have something uh, some, something useful to say uh, for policy and planning. And I'm not sort of this advocate for waste energy systems. They have their own issues. Um, very quickly, I will say that the waste energy systems is, uh, have long been used, especially in the US, many other countries where the idea is that you bring in municipal waste, uh, you incinerate it, get energy uh, uh, out of this, and then you know you essentially burn the waste in power plants. Uh, that is not environmentally the best actually solution, as as many people pointed out afterwards. That hey, you know we're burning all this paper and plastics and really creating other pollutants. We're creating air pollution. We're creating you know um, harmful ash. So it's actually not something from an environmental sense the best you know uh, solution out there. But since that recognition and since that you know sort of um, uh, sort of knowledge uh, development, there have been efforts to improve these things. Okay, so is there, are there ways in which we can capture, you know, the harmful gases? Are there ways in which we can reduce the emission? Are there ways in which we are better off from the baseline than, uh, you know, uh, with these systems, right? And that's the big question to ask. So, uh, and that's sort of what I've tried to attempt in this paper. So I'm not advocating that this is the way forward for solving solving two problems at once, uh, getting rid of the waste and, and, and getting some energy out of it, not at all. But the way I saw it was 
really motivated by this issue of urban pollution that you will see in so many cities uh, around the world, solid waste, uh, simply sort of scattered in open heaps or in uh, sort of open garbage dumps, producing uh, essentially putting out emissions in all cases, so in, in the air, uh, in the water, and in the soil. So this is a massive problem and a growing one, especially in large cities where population increasing. And the question I asked was that what to do about it? Are there ways to incentivize waste collection, waste management, waste treatment, and then it's safe disposal. And one way to do this, one possible way to do is, is to think about potential benefits that can come by creating this waste management system. And that was the energy piece. Now you cannot generate enough energy in any meaningful way to you know, supply power that would be sufficient for a whole city. Uh, absolutely not. It'll, you know, for some of the analysis that we did, it's just a fraction, a small fraction. Uh, but still, it is a little bit of energy, uh, which, which, which can be, you know, uh, of interest, especially to cities where, energy, where there are shortages of energies, that's one piece. And the other is that when you create systems where there is a whole process of, you know, collecting and managing and treating waste, uh, then you are dealing with a huge public health issue, which in my view uh, is so important and often never monetized. Uh, so when you look at the energy issue, it suddenly becomes monetized because you can sell the energy, there's a revenue stream attached to it, and many of those things, which unfortunately is not the case in how public health is viewed and treated in many of these cities. So all of this sort of background context is what you know, motivated me to do this work uh, in, in just doing an analysis to see uh, what is the role and potential and possibility for thinking about these ways to, especially new waste energy systems where you have a better environmental footprint, where you have lower emissions and you, you better deal with, with the issues of, um, uh, of ash and so forth. And, and that's, uh, that's the work we've done and, and, and I hope it will be useful. Um, and, and I think it's, it's very much needed in, in many cities in Africa in Asia in Latin America and so forth. And as I mentioned, it's already used in, in major cities here in the US. It has been for decades, but those systems have not been the best from an environmental sense, but I think there's more awareness now and how, how, how can we do things better. More in terms of, uh, for example, your paper on water infrastructure um with um the, these systems they're kind of ranging into risking tens tens of billions of dollars um and uh you know this this money obviously doesn't come from nowhere and uh it's 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 a lot to kind of expect these developing economies to uh, make those changes without um raising prices significantly uh so if you could speak to maybe the work being done in um and how to make this transition as smooth as possible, essentially, uh, without um, endangering people's lives or, uh, you know, risking public health efforts and things like that. Yeah, no, that's uh, so. So thank you for that. No, so that's you know uh, a key problem and a key topic that I find very interesting. That how do we think about uh, infrastructure development? How do we think about you know development of systems that are costly uh, when we talk about infrastructure by you know uh, especially water energy transportation we're talking about uh, millions uh, in some cases billions of dollars uh, so how do we do this in a smart sensible way given that this infrastructure has to operate for decades out into the future and in those decades we don't know what how the future will unfold even what the demand would be, uh, and how do we make sensible decisions that need to be taken now? This is a question that, you know, 
is not new. This is a question that will always be playing out anytime we need to make investments for things that have to operate for decades out into the future. And infrastructure is one of those things for decades, sometimes even centuries, if we're talking about dams and so forth. So, so the work that I do and many others have done before me is to advocate and, but also not just advocate, but analyze when and where flexibility can make sense. And how do we think about uh, infrastructure in a smart way in which we only make the necessary investments uh, that perhaps can give us the highest likelihood of utility, uh, but avoid any, uh, let's say, uh, overcapacity or avoid any expense or investments that really didn't need to be made uh, once the future unfolds and we realize that, you know, this, this really was needed or necessary. Uh, this, this is the mindset that we need to bring in rather than thinking through that, you know, where we're committing, you know, uh, a large amount of capital uh, to systems that have to operate out into the future. And yet we do not adequately and, and uh, honestly uh, accept that the future may be very different from what we're expecting it to be. I'll give you one example of hydropower systems, right? Um, Many places uh, now in the US, uh, hydropower development is not really a major, uh, major uh, place where a lot of investment goes, but there are other countries that continue to develop hydropower. Uh, and I give you the example of hydropower because of the issue of water uncertainty, right? So when we're talking about climate change, the issue of water is, is very much there. And uh, in, at least in my own observation, what I've seen is that many investments continue to be made without adequately accounting for the fact that the flows might be very different. Uh, so, so you might in some case be uh, ending up with overcapacity. In other cases, uh, for other types of investments, uh, you may have undercapacity. Uh, this is the case maybe for some uh, transportation infrastructure or energy infrastructure. So the key point I'm trying to make is that uh, taxpayer dollars are precious, uh, infrastructure is expensive. And the way we want to think about this is to really think through how can we build infrastructure that gives us the most options to adapt into the future? And that is being judicious with our spending. So we spend what is necessary, but not more and not less. And we are smart about our spending so that we create provisions upfront in the design of the infrastructure itself that will allow us to make changes that may be necessary into the future, but we don't know exactly what those changes are. So that's sort of the thinking that I think is really important, but going beyond that thinking, but showing how do we actually analyze it is what I've done in some of the work uh, that, that you're referring to and, and others have also done so. So I feel that is very crucial, uh, this idea of flexibility and adaptability when we're talking about infrastructure. Right, I think that speaks like really, really closely to the issue that um, a lot of you know countries are facing. Um, but that being said, I mean, uh, if if there's anything you would like to add, kind of as your uh, final remarks, we would really welcome that. Yeah, so you know, one uh, one point I would like to make, which I have strongly sort of felt and observed, and and I feel that you know it continues to play out, is in the context of SDGs, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals. I've I've studied them and I, and I, and, and that is, uh, you know, coming from systems background, goals are very much central to how we, you know, uh, organize our thinking in, in many ways. Uh, in systems theory, uh, in systems planning, we start with, uh, you know, what are the goals and objectives of what it is that you're trying to do? So SDGs in that sense resonate uh, 
with me uh, from that perspective, uh, just given my own work. But what I also would like to add to that conversation is that oftentimes people will ask that, you know, uh, we have these goals and pledges and promises are made and yet we're unable to achieve them. Um, and, and what's the puzzle? What's the paradox? Uh, a lot of countries, you know, earnestly and honestly make pledges and yet, you know, the uh, follow through is, is, is limited. Uh, and this is a debate that, you know, people will unpack, I think, in very detailed ways, in various ways, but at least from the system's perspective, what I observe is that there is one partial explanation for why these goals are not achieved fully, and which is due to the lack of alignment of goals of all the actors, and what one at least, uh, you know, some have postulated in, in system theory and who, who look at work from that perspective, uh, systems literature from that perspective is that within our world, there are many actors and they all have their own goals. And if one actor uh, has a particular set of goals, uh, that's great. They will act in order to achieve those goals, but other actors may have different goals and they will act to achieve their goals. And the overall net effect on the state of the system might be no change at all because the actions are counteracting each other. Uh, or in some cases, you may make matters even worse because all the actors are acting uh, in pursuance of their particular agendas and goals and the state of the system uh, may actually deteriorate than where it was before. And that can partly explain why we don't necessarily see progress, at least in some cases where there are different actors pursuing their particular goals and we don't see the net state of the system. And when I say state of the system, I'm, I'm talking about air quality, I'm talking about clean water, I'm talking about so many things that we don't see improving or getting better. Um, so, uh, so until we get goal alignment between the actors, I think uh, we may continue to see this issue of not really achieving what we have set out to achieve. So it's very important to understand who the we is when we talk about goals and really important to understand uh, all the different goals that, that people have in our world. Our world is complex and diverse, and it would be an oversimplification to assume that everybody shares the same goals. So I think uh, it's, it's important to, to really understand what are the motivation and goals of, of our diverse world and, and then work our way through that. Once again, that was Afreen Siddiqui. The papers we referenced in our conversation can be found linked somewhere nearby in the cyberspace. To end with a quote from Vladimir Nabokov, the lovely thing about humanity is that at times one may be unaware of doing right, but one is always aware of doing wrong. See you next time.